0: Tonight, we're going to continue on with a series that, of course, we began some time ago. We've called it, Does It Really Matter? And we're we're coming to the conclusion of this series. So we're not going to finish it tonight, but we are going to use tonight as somewhat of a springboard for how we will wrap up the thoughts in the very near future regarding, does it really matter? And tonight, we're going to for the answer to the question, does it really matter? The title of the message tonight is, does it really matter if my desires are different than yours? Now, we might even give it some further clarity by saying, so long as my desires are sincere, or I I have this earnest, sincere, firmly held, uh, a longly held desire, does it really matter if my desires are different than yours. How many of you have something in your possession right now that, um, that it doesn't really belong to you, but you've borrowed it and you've actually had it for so long that it's kind of like it's yours? How many of you have something like that? Have you ever come across a book or a shirt or a tool or something and you come across it and it's like, oh yeah. Have you ever opened a book that you thought was yours. I mean, you thought it was yours because you've had that book. I've had this thing forever. I don't know where I got it. And you open the cover and it's like, oh, that belongs to Bill. Okay. And you've had something for so long that by, by definition of possession, you feel like it truly belongs to you because, because you've just had it forever. I think at times we start to adopt something that we begin to claim as our own. Like this is mine. I'm in possession of this and I've had this for so long that clearly this must be mine. But, But it'd be good for us to ask who or what is informing or instructing our desires. And desires are something that that we have obviously a lot of controversy and sometimes conversation regarding. Are you familiar with the term antinomian? How many of you have heard that word before, that term before, antinomian or Antinomianism. How many of you? How many you never heard that before? Never heard of? Okay, lots of us. The 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 term is something that we'll explore a little bit further in our series in Romans. Uh, The Apostle Paul addresses this idea in the book of of Corinthians because the church at Corinth was kind of wrapped up in this antinomian sensation. This this philosophy anti-against. And then, and then it's a compound word, the gnomian the, 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 the or the second part of it really has to do with the law. So anti-law. And really what they were saying is obviously grace has freed us from the demands of the law. So since I'm under grace, whatever desire I have is a legitimate desire. I mean, do whatever you want because we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. So, so, hey, listen, what do you desire? What do you want to do? Actually, the more you do whatever you want to do, the, the more it redounds to the grace of God. It shows how great God's grace is because there are really no limits to your desire. Well, well, Paul's going to refute that and he's going to correct that thinking. He he. Asks a rhetorical question and then he answers it resoundingly. He said, "Should we continue in sin that grace may abound?" And then he says emphatically, "God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein?" So, so he's going to answer this. But I think at times in our own culture and our own society, we start to be a little confused by what does grace look like in 2022. And what part does it actually play with my desires? The Bible addresses desire, of course, all throughout and, and everybody has them. The, the word that the Bible uses for desire is not really a moral word. in, in fact, it, it's morality, it's, it's, it's morally neutral, but it does connect itself to morality depending on how we connect the word. Now, most of the time in our Bibles, the the word desire would be translated with a word that we oftentimes immediately connect to morality. So we're not going to park on this tonight, but it it connects the word, you know, um, um, desire to what we would refer to or what we see read in Scripture as lust. For example, 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, flee also youthful lusts. But really the word is desires, but he's connecting it to something moral because there are desires in our youth that we're supposed to stay away from. Okay, don't, don't, don't get embroiled in those desires. Uh, James 1.15, then when lust, when desire has conceived it bring forth sin, sin when it's finished bring forth death, do not err, my beloved brethren. But the word again, it's morally neutral. It's used elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, the, the very word that we would translate lust in those two passages is a word connected to desire with Jesus. And we know that Jesus is perfect. He's, he's perfect in all his ways. He, 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 he never sinned. Uh, Luke, 2, Luke 22, 15, and he, that is Jesus, said unto them with desire. We, we would translate that elsewhere with lust. But, but this is not some... some you know, lascivious desire, some sinful desire. He says, with desire, have I desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer? He says, listen, I've got a strong desire to remember the Passover. I want to observe the Passover with you before I go to the cross and suffer. I'm saying all of that to say that that desire is something that, that all of us have. The word desire is not not immediately sinful. There are all kinds of desires. Desire itself is not inherently good and it's not inherently bad. It just depends on what we do with the desire. And we have desires to eat, to sleep, desires for procreation, desire to laugh, desire to connect, desire to succeed, desire to be creative, desire to look good and so on. We have all kinds of desires. So, so just because we have a desire, sometimes we, we get so afraid of desire that we, we don't even at times maybe explore some healthy desire. Desires to be creative. Desires to explore. Desire to learn, to grow and instead of being somewhat robotic. Desire in and of itself is not something that God tells us to run away from he just says make sure you're connecting your desire to the right source so again we have all kinds of desires God graciously gives us the power think through this God graciously gives us the power the ability to direct our desires he's he's freed us now I think I think primarily, and again, this is not the the primary point of this, but I think primarily the reason God has freed our desires is so that we can ultimately make him our chief desire. If God didn't free us to make desire choices, then where would the, the purity of the relationship be if we couldn't freely choose to desire him? So God has, in a sense, loosed our desires, and now you and I get to do with our desires as we see fit. Now, there's wisdom in wise desires or or wise informing, instructing our desires. There's something that is terribly consequential if we direct that in the wrong way, but God has freed us regarding our desire. Now, the psalmist said this way, because the pinnacle of our desire should be him. Like, like God, my first desire, my greatest desire is to know you and to make you known. The psalmist said it this way. Psalm 27, verse number four. One thing have I desired. Now, that's not to say that the, the, the psalmist never is hungry or desires food. It's not to say, and, and I'm going to say this, you know, quite... Frankly, it's not to say that the psalmist never has a desire for an intimate physical relationship. It's not to say that the psalmist doesn't have a desire to connect with other people through friendship and and love and expressions of the same. But it is to say that when the psalmist says, one thing have I desired, he's saying one chief thing. One thing that all other desires have to become subservient to. I have a primary desire. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. He said, okay, my first desire is something that I'm going to start actually taking steps to accomplish. I want to see this realized. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, God, I want to dwell in the place where you are all the days of my life. Now, now we, we read that somewhat literally, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of, of my life, that I may make my habitation your holy tabernacle. But really what he's saying is, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. You, God, are my chief desire okay so so he's understanding there is a an apex a pinnacle something that is the greatest of all desires and that's my first desire so we ask ourselves the question you know what do you desire above all things if you strip away everything else what is it that you really want What is the desire that actually is informing all of your decisions? Maybe defining you. We We sometimes identify ourselves by our desires. So what is it that is your chief desire? One thing the primary thing. You you take everything else away, all those lesser desires. What is that one primary desire? If we get to the heart of our desires, we begin to see how they're formed and what to do with them. We, We actually begin to mature as a believer when we understand what is to be my chief desire. In some sense, we begin to When my desires are rightly informed, we start to put something on. We we start to reflect something, or better said, we start to actually reflect someone. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, listen to the the idea of, of putting something off, getting rid of something, and then putting something on. Listen to what he says. He's writing, again, to the church at Ephesus, um, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 22, that you put off, okay, just, just like a coat, you know, okay, so, so, hey, there's something that you're supposed to put off. I, I know this is a, a silly, literal illustration, but he said, okay, you've been, you've been conversing your life, you've been traversing, that's a better way to say it, you've been traversing through life, your conversation. Now, when the Bible uses the word conversation, it's not really, um, hey, hey, let's, let's talk, Your conversation, that's your manner of life. He says that you put off. Now look a little bit further. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the former lifestyle. And then he says the old man, the former you. This is not who you really are. This is who you used to be, but you're not that person anymore. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful. Now listen, don't miss this. According to deceitful lusts. Again, it's not the, the problem is not the desire. It's that the desires have been deceived. So desire, again, this is not the, 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 the bottom line problem. Hey, don't have desires. We, we would be so robotic then, so, so lost in, in, in sameness. But he said, no, 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 no. The, the desire is not the problem, but you have to put off something that you used to be the former lifestyle, the former conversation. Th- these things were informed by deceitful desires, deceitful lusts. And then he goes on and he says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created. After God, with a purpose, with intention, after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, not feigned holiness, not, not put on holiness. He says, hey, listen, now you're actually starting to take on, to put on the very purpose for which you were created. We, we talk about this often, this um, idea that the Christian life is not a list-based Christianity. It's hard for, for some of us, and I'm, I put me in the, in the some of us. It's hard for us to not, not continually f- go to a default place. Like, this is, my, this is where I kind of land continually. The default place of, of a list kind of Christianity. Do this, don't do that. L- 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 yes, no. Right, wrong. You, you know, just this, this grand list. Instead of something that is more, I don't know, more intrinsic, it, it starts within. And then a likeness begins to actually form. We take on an image that is natural, organic, growing. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that it's actually more like a paint, more like painting a picture, a resemblance than establishing a list that's a good that's a good helpful mental illustration he said really the likeness of Christ to put that on it's more like okay let's let's paint a picture and a picture takes time have you ever watched someone who who is good at at drawing portraits have you ever watched someone how many times they'll begin with a pencil sketch and they'll start sketching out some things and they're studying the person that they're, that they're drawing and, and maybe through pictures or maybe the person's actually seated there and they start to get the, the sense of. And when you're watching, you say, wow, that doesn't look very much like the person. But the more they go, the the, the further they get into it, the more nuance they begin to put. The shading, the different angles, the the, the lighting, the color. Now, oh, even more and more. Now, all of those were some resemblance of, albeit hard to see. But the more the person begins to to take on the, the detail, the more clearly the image begins to be formed. And this is what God begins to do with our desires. He begins to shape and direct and and as he is the one who informs our desires, not some other source like, okay, well, well, I get my source of information regarding how my desires are formed from here or from here or from here. No, God says, "Let, let me be the one who informs, instructs, instills your desire. Ultimately, it's a matter of God's painting a likeness of his son onto our lives. Remember, this is the restoration of God's original purpose. This is a return to the very early, what we understand like, wow, this is the reason for which we were created. And God said, let us make man in our image. We're starting to return to the very purpose for which mankind was created. When a likeness of Jesus Christ begins to be formed in me. As we begin to grow slowly, but consistently into that likeness, God very patiently and methodically is growing his son into our lives. Now, man, we we may be in the infant stages of this, but God so patiently is growing us, and, and the likeness of Christ is being formed. Have you ever watched, how many of you have ever watched a mother speak to her infant child like the child could understand her? Well, how are you doing today? And the child has no idea. They're just spitting all over themselves, you know. My, look at you, isn't that something? Let's, we'll just clean that up, okay? I'm gonna get this and, okay, there we go. Well, I talked to your dad today about painting your room. It's gonna be so nice. What color would you like it to be? More spit comes up, you know, and this child has no idea. But this mom is talking to this little infant child as if the child can fully understand. But do you know what's happening? I mean, something is happening. How does a child actually learn how to speak if it never hears the words spoken? Something is slowly, gradually being formed in that child, even through those simple early interactions. And what is it that God's doing in your life and in my life? He he is speaking truths into us, some of which, like, Lord, I don't even understand that. And he says, I know, but someday you will. And so carefully, like a, like a loving father with his son, like a nursing mother who cradles her child. God is growing us into something beyond ourselves. So, so Psalm 17, verse number 15, as for me, again, the psalmist says, here's my desire. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. And here's where I get my satisfaction, he says. I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. This is the ultimate desire and the satisfaction of desire when he says, guess what? There is something, now I know it might not be perfect. It might be some some rough sketch. It might be a, a, a challenging image, but I see the likeness of Jesus in me. The very purpose for which we were created. If you want to talk about fulfillment in life, It is fulfilling when we start to actually embrace the purpose for which God created us. So what is God's desire for us? We know, okay, well, we've been talking about our desires. What's his desire for us? Again, Psalm 51, verse number six, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. What does God desire for us? Well, he wants us to have something inside of us that actually directs, in a sense, outside of us. Okay, the the truth in the inward parts. He, He doesn't want just some external, you know, outward conformity to the law. He says, listen, I want you to conform to my moral law. I want you to conform to holy living. I want you to conform to a righteous life. Yes, he does desire that, but he says it has to begin someplace, and it's not outside it begins internally. Now, I would submit to you that that God in his graciousness oftentimes places us in settings where there is an expectation regarding external conformity to a law. I I get that. There is oftentimes, for example, as a kid growing up, how many times did your parents say, no, you're not going to do that, but I want to. Well, not in this house, okay? Well, that's what I want to do. Well, someday you're going to have your own house and then you can. But what your parents were doing, what my parents were doing is they're, is they're saying, okay, hey, listen, here are the guidelines. Here's the list, so to speak, for our house. But do you know ultimately what they want? Ultimately, what they're desiring is for you to take truth. That, that's the right desire of a parent, for you to take truth and internalize it. And then create some things for your home that are driven by truth not just the external list. We have a a mass of people that are fleeing from what they have been so exposed to, because at times, I think we have so highlighted, start with the external and throw away the internal, or we've we've not said, well, God, what do you really desire? Truth in the inward parts. God desires something internally that reflects itself externally. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou, Job is speaking to God. God, you're going to call and I'm going to answer. Why? Because God goes on and he says, he says, thou shalt have a desire toward the work of thy hands. God, you have, okay, you're calling me. I'm answering. Why? Because you have a desire for the purpose for which you created me. So God has desires, and those desires can only be fulfilled when our desires, our choice, rightly chooses him. So who or what is informing, instructing our desires? The, the, the illustration, we're not going to take time to turn to it because we've, we've spent more time on other parts. But let me walk us through it, and, and we'll be done. Do you remember the passage of scripture where David as king said, I want to, I desire, I want to have the Ark of the Covenant here with me in Jerusalem, what, what we now refer to as the city of David. So David had a good desire and David says, all right, um, um, let's bring the Ark um, from where it's resting and let's bring it here to the center place, to the hub of all of Israel. Let's bring it here to Israel. Well, they, they do. They're going to take a new cart and, and they get this really beautiful cart together and, and they go to the place where it was resting. It was resting in the, the, the house of a guy named Abinadab. And, and they go, they take the cart, they, they put the ark on this new cart, and they begin to transport the ark to the very hub of worship, and that is Jerusalem. Um while they're doing that, it's they, being pulled by a couple of oxen, so they've got some oxen hooked up to this cart, and the, the ark is on the cart and and um, the oxen, the Bible says, stumbled, so it kind of lurches, and the ark that's sitting on this cart, and probably a beautiful cart, you know the 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 the, the, the oxen lurch and, and the, the ark it, it jolts and, and a guy named Uzzah, Uzzah, he reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And he's, he's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help. Uh, he reaches out to steady it. And as soon as he touches it, he dies. He touched the ark of God and he dies. And now David is really distraught. Like, wow, like, they, they park the ark. A guy's house named, I think it was Obed-Edom. They, they park it in his house and they say, okay, stay in there. Because um, we can't transform, how, what are we supposed to do? I had a good desire, but, but clearly, you know, this, this, we can't do this. And so they park the ark. And then David hears how the Lord's blessing the house where the ark is residing. And, and they do a little further research and they, they conclude, hey, we, we, I had a good desire, but I wanted to do a good thing in a way that was not blessed by God. So his desire, the, the, the overarching desire, hey, that's good, but now what you want to do with that desire, not good, inconsistent with God. And they found out that the way the ark was to be transported, the way God had always said to transport the ark is take two rods, two wooden rods made of, of shittim wood and, and insert them on either side of the ark and then the priests are going to bear the ark on their shoulders and, and so that's what they did. They, they got the staves made, these, these, these gold-covered staves, and, and they insert them on either side of the ark, and the priests pick up the ark, and you, you know there had to be some tension, some nervousness. A guy had just died, but now they begin to transport the ark, and every few paces they would actually stop and offer sacrifices, and when they come into Jerusalem, I mean the place is electric. Electric. And there's, there's music that's playing. This is one of those passages we've referenced before that David just shouts and dances before the Lord. We've said that David's probably just spinning around and throwing his arms up saying, God, all the praise and glory, the blessing belongs to you. Um, his wife lo- is looking out a window and as, as jubilant as Israel was, she despises David. David. Do you know what that tells me? Because David now has a right desire and he's married that right desire with a right way. His desire actually is consistent now. He's got, we all have desires, but now David has informed his desire in a way consistent with his God. If David's saying, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold your beauty and your habitation, that's what I want. Then God's saying, okay, then inform your desires with me. David, you don't get to do whatever you want with your desires. So make your desires subservient to mine. And that's what David does. He says, okay, I, want, I desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Okay, well, that's a good desire, but make that desire submissive to me. And David now, in a sense, informs his desire. And he aligns them to be consistent with. Everybody's not gonna be happy with that. You're not gonna get universal praise, you will have praise from the one who matters. And that's what David received. He got to bring the ark to the very, the, the very center place of worship. And, and there it would continue to reside. Where do we land with all of this? You know, today, the ark of God is, is I don't know if it still exists. There's lots of theories and there's lots of speculation but I, I don't know if the ark is still in existence. If it was destroyed. If it's been hidden, buried. I don't, I don't know. But the ark was only a picture, a very important picture, but only a picture. The ark was the picture of the very presence of God. It pictured His dwelling place. in Second Samuel six two, the Lord of Hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Well, well, where does God really dwell? Where is the the residence, the dwelling place of God? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So the question remains for us is how is it that we are transporting the very person of Almighty God? I would submit that it should be consistent with his desire and that ours should be submissive to his. When we ask the question, does it really matter if my desires are different than yours? Well, I suppose the most important question is not if my desires are different than yours. Does it really matter if my desires are different than his? And the answer to that is a resounding yes.